Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to our second podcast video in the series. It's Go Big or Get Out, the ESG-focused driving landscape-changing consumer sector M&A. Now, more than ever, it is essential that ESG considerations form part of the core deal thesis. At the end of the day, ESG drives value, and we'll be chatting a little bit about how. Cam and I will chat about the phases of ESG-driven M&A cycle how ESG considerations actually play out in approaching M&A, some challenges for our regulators, um, and we'll finish off with our crystal ball and observations on where to from here. I'll let Cam introduce himself, but just a quick intro on me. I'm a corporate M&A partner in the Sydney office here at Herbert Smith Freehills and do a number of transactions in the consumer sector. Cam, over to you. Thanks, Malika. Hi, everybody. I'm Cam Jamshidi. I'm also a partner in the M&A corporate group uh, here in Melbourne, uh, Australia. So really pleased to be talking about ESG matters in the consumer space with you, Malika. And look, um, sitting in Australia, we have uh, the fortune of having observed the great energy transition, which has been a huge catalyst for M&A in our market. And I think there are a lot of lessons coming out of that energy transition-driven M&A that we certainly have been front and centre of, and and we look forward to sharing those insights with you today. Um, As you said, Malika, we do see ESG M&A panning out really in, in four phases. Um, I think we're sort of at the, at the early stages of what I expect to be a multi-year cycle uh, in terms of ESG M&A. And as I say, it really has been driven by the energy transition here in Australia. So, Malika, why don't you take us through sort of where we're at today on the on the first part of or first phase of our cycle? Sure. Um, happy to, Cam. So, I think what we are seeing um are companies doing a portfolio review with an ESG lens? And there's two aspects to that. That could be the divestiture of non-core assets that might be perceived as overall adverse to the brand's kind of overall ESG image. Or on the flip side, acquisitions that are deemed to be ESG positive. You know, we're not looking at the overall portfolio. And of course, it's more nuanced than that. And we'll talk a little bit about sort of drivers of M&A. But we are seeing that kind of overall portfolio review. Now, demergers are a big part of this. So for example, um, Woolworths demerged the um, Endeavour group. Now, the Endeavour group is set up and it divested its um, Woolworths divested its liquor retaining chains, um, Dan Murphy's, BWS, et cetera, into Endeavour as a separate entity. Now, there would be a range of reasons for that divestment, but ESG considerations were no doubt a part of that. The other one that comes to mind, Cam, um, is the sort of contest for the Huon um, Salmon business. JBS ended up acquiring that business. Now, JBS is a large international meat processing company and Huon Salmon is you know it's a renowned premium product it's founded on sustainable farming practices a commitment to animal welfare you know it's an ESG focused business and I sort of can't help but think that a part of the driver for that acquisition might have been looking at kind of a real ESG positive business and what we would hope is out of you know those types of acquisitions you know that ESG focused and 
um, is influential in the broader business as well. But I think that we are seeing people look at their portfolio to to do that. You know, I can see it happening possibly in the beverages or, you know, alcohol sector um, with this slight shift to non-alcoholic beers and, and wines, for example, are we going to see um, the beverages companies looking at acquiring in that sector or building capability in that sector, for example? So I think that overall portfolio review. What are you seeing, Cam, um, in that space? Yeah, it's interesting, Malika. I reckon we focus a lot on the divestment sides that, that you mentioned and less so on the acquisition side. Um, if I think about some of the global deals, um, Mars acquired the Kind Group, which was sort of a healthy nutrition snack bar business. Um, and, and really the way they entered that market or that, that opportunity was quite interesting. They took a small stake, a 20 30% stake, and essentially had a look at the operations, went to 100%, and clearly that's going to form part of, you know, an important part of their business going forward. So there is a rebalancing. It's easy to focus on the divestments, but definitely we're seeing it on the acquisition side um, start to emerge, probably less so here in Australia, but but again, I, th I think in the, in the consumer space, that is probably the next big uh, sub-phase within your first phase. And that's really interesting, Cam, that sort of acquisition of a portion of the business and then going to 100. I mean, we're seeing that trend around people forming different sort of joint ventures, et cetera, and ESG considerations are very much front and centre in those as well, as you say, to be able to learn from a business and then scale up. Yeah. So, so look, that's sort of phase one, and we're definitely in the mix um, or, or well into phase one, if you like. Um, phase Two, which I think we've also started to see, probably more so again in the energy in the energy space, is really what I call a doubling down um, or a concentration of risk. If you have an ESG exposure that is core to your business, uh, you can hardly divest uh, the ESG challenged aspects of your business. So what we're seeing are those are those pure plays increase uh, the scale of their operations. And really, that will enable them to better manage the risk and the turbulence that, that may arise as a result of ESG challenges in the industry. Um, and, you know, again, drawing on the energy transition, we saw the oil search Santos transaction or the BHP Petroleum Woodside transaction, where an increase in scale um, is expected to allow those companies to better manage the ESG challenges they face. Uh, and withstand the turbulence that, that their sectors and industries are seeing. So it, certainly the consolidation of risk is definitely a, th a theme we're seeing uh, emerge at the moment. It's very interesting. So what's the third phase? I think, um, you know, we're seeing private capital emerge in all sectors as a huge um you know, pocket and driver of M&A generally, how does that link to ESG? I think what we're seeing and going to see more of are individuals or private capital with a strong ESG focus, you know, playing an active role in driving M&A, you know, whether that's partnering with other large um, sort of players in the market to bring an ESG lens to transactions, but really using that private capital as influence in determining kind of um, the, the direction of M&A transactions and driving ESG M&A. 
Definitely. I, I reckon when you talk to private equity clients, Malika, um, the level of uh, or, or the the vocalness with which their investors, the limited partners, are pushing them to look at ESG opportunities and, and better position their portfolio with ESG uh, positive assets, if you like, uh, definitely that is a theme that is front and centre for the manager's mind, and you're definitely seeing that with with private equity clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, phase four, which we haven't seen yet, but worries me a little bit, Malika, is um, towards the end of this cycle, if we start to see ESG-challenged businesses fail to be to, to meet or to, to have demand, um, those situations resulting in what I'd call buyers of last resort uh, situations arise. Um, usually, in my mind, that would be private capital that is not regulated, not necessarily answerable to public institutions. Um, the, the challenge is that if assets arise without interest or demand from buyers and deep value opportunities arise in those ESG-challenged situations, then these buyers of last resort may, may start getting quite active. And the big challenge for all of us is then how are those ESG risks managed in the hands of these buyers of last resort? And, and I, as I say, we, you know, I think we're quite a way off that at the moment, but it is a cause for, for us just to, to pause and think about and in particular for sellers to think about what that means for the risks they carry post-divestments. That's really interesting, Cam, um, and one to keep out, uh, keep the radar up for. So just pivoting then to thinking about how does ESG play into actual M&A transactions? You know, you've identified an asset, sort of what, what considerations um, would people look at and kind of how does ESG play into value? So I'd say very much it plays into value, you know, both in, I guess, in two senses. One is not um, being cognizant of ESG risks can be a real um, value chip, if you like, and you've got to be, you know, in assessing a target, I think really understanding what is the risk profile of this business and what is it going to cost, and particularly as ESG, you know, comes into focus more and more. So whether that's... um, you know, having to comply with um, sort of regulations around supply chain internationally, you know, and say a business doesn't have those in place today, what is the cost of putting all of that in place and making sure you're modelling and including the cost of basically remedying, um, you know, a failure or, or, you know, a lack of focus in that area or indeed actually using a bit of a crystal ball to look at what are the regulations coming down the pike for this business and how would we manage the costs of those business. And then on the other side um, of the coin, looking at how does ESG drive, you know, value in the business. So in consumer businesses in particular, you've got consumers and, you know, preferences, particularly among younger consumers for goods that are, that have, you know, a strong ESG positive um, aspect to it. And I think that differentiation will be key to attracting and, you know, retaining consumers. It's sort of that green premium. People are willing to pay more for products that are ESG positive. So that's how you drive value and making sure that, you know, you're sort of cognizant of how that, that works. And probably maybe just a third aspect 
in terms of value is attracting talent and the right talent to build value in the company. Because again, I think that employees are becoming a lot more conscious of, you know, where they work and what is the ESG focus of the business. And, um, you know, that trend I think will continue. Yeah, very interesting, Malika. I I reckon, look, I reckon there are two sort of shoots to this, how people approach M&A with an ESG lens. On the one hand, it is ESG-motivated action, and I think that gets a lot of press and we spend a lot of time on on this video talking about it. Um, So that's sort of clear and obvious. But but the other side to it, in my mind, is ESG consciousness in M&A situations. Mm -hmm. And really, I think there's two parts to that. One is known known ESG risk. And I think, you know, clients, practitioners, market participants are really alive to that. They now know that known issues they need solutions for, they need to analyse deeply. Um, And quite often that's a custom solution that needs to be developed. So I think we've quite progressed and advanced on that front. The other side that is starting to creep in, and and this is one where um, self-interestedly the advisors can add a lot of value in, is how do you start trying to filter for unknown ESG risks. And um, I think we're still very early stage. We see a lot of clients who are early stage in their thinking on that. Um, And really at the outset of your due diligence process, your transaction document negotiations, I, I think acknowledging that there are these unknown ESG risks and trying to build the scope of or, or, or the size of the net uh, that you want to cast in order to identify those issues and deal with them. Um, I, I think that's one worth having a conversation early on in a process just to make sure that uh, that ESG consciousness is live in the in the deal team's mind, really. Those are really great observations, Cam, and certainly as we um, in M&A do more transactions, I think that's definitely front of mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think... Uh, you know, it's going to come through in financing deals as well. And, you know, that's the other lens. We're going to see finances push for that sort of diligence, for example. I should say, I mean, one thing we're definitely seeing is vendors identifying their own ESG issues and pre-packing solutions or pre-packing analysis for the buyers in order to ensure that buyers are a pricing or risk assessing those situations with, with the right perspective or the preferred perspective. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I suppose just moving then quickly to a couple of other topics, you know, what's this going to do to the regulatory landscape um, and how regulators view transactions? Um, Often on the transactions we work on, you've got a foreign investment element, you get FERB looking at the transaction or there might be a competition element, you'll have the ACCC looking at it. As we see more ESG-driven deals, I wonder whether... ESG considerations are going to form more of, you know, a part of, say, the national interest test and thinking about ESG considerations and what value does the foreign buyer bring to the organisation and what are they going to do from an ESG perspective? I'm curious to see if that becomes um, something that that plays into it. And then similarly for the ACCC, um, in terms of thinking about transactions and their impact, will ESG considerations start to play into it? any other regulators, Cam? Well, yeah, well, a few others, but, uh, you know, on the ACCC, Malika, I don't envy their role uh, in assessing ESG-related M&A because it does need 
crystal ball gazing, gazing beyond what they're asked to do already. It really requires them to understand transitions that are happening in these industries and sectors and, and try and assess whether um, the impact on competition uh, is problematic or not with a view to what the, what the sectors and industries might look like in, in you know, the medium to longer term. Um, in terms of other regulators, I, I mean, look, without without pointing to specific regulators, there is a really important question now for how regulators view buyers and their capability to manage the ESG risks and liabilities that may emerge into the future. And uh, we're seeing regulators definitely probing and questioning that aspect of transactions a lot more deeply than they used to. So I think that will definitely continue to be a theme um, going forward. No, absolutely. So um, I guess that, you know, takes us to our final crystal ball moment, which is, you know, where to from here? There's clearly been a dramatic shift in the landscape. You know, ESG um, absolutely plays such a huge role. And, you know, as we were talking about before, Cam, I think we're probably only in the middle of it. There's still plenty to see. Interested in any other thoughts? Yeah, I reckon uh, this is we're probably phase one and a half of the four we identified, Malika. So I reckon this will play out for many more years. Now, the the great advantage we have here in Australia is because of our exposure to the energy sector, we you know that that has accelerated the ESG M&A, and a lot of the learnings from that industry I think will be directly applicable to a lot of sectors, including the consumer sector. Um, and what I'd say is, you know, push your advisor team, push your internal teams to really think about the ES or approach the M&A with an ESG lens early. Um, and you'll get better outcomes as a result. I think the winners are going to be those who position in with that mindset early rather than the laggards. That's good advice, Cam. And as you say, particularly for consumer sector companies where consumers are so focused on ESG and there is that direct relationship. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and we'll chat to you another time. Thank you. Bye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.